Well, if you have not been with us in this series in Acts, it's been absolutely unreal. And the subtitle for the entire series has been A Remnant on Mission. And so today we're going to make a little transition into when the remnant on mission becomes a church in Antioch, and then that church becomes missional, meaning this is the story we're about to read in just a few moments where missionaries are sent out for the first time to the ends of the earth. And it kind of marks this complete shift in the the story of the message of Jesus and the story getting to the ends of the earth. And here's what I want you to pay attention to. Every time that the gospel advances and the kingdom of God advances, darkness fights back. Every time. And so the title of this sermon, if you need one, is When Darkness Fights Back. When Darkness Fights Back. See, for the rest of Acts, there's going to be this thing that happens. It's a push and pull, a tug in the spiritual war that's going on for your soul. And some of you, it's no coincidence that you are here today. And maybe, just maybe, you are experiencing God like you've never experienced him before. Maybe the pages of scripture are coming alive to you. Maybe you're witnessing in real time the testimonies of friends and family coming to love Jesus. And at the exact same time, you're going through the diagnosis. You're going through the situation. You're going through the heartbreak. You're going through the trial. Why? It's because when the gospel advances, darkness fights back. And it's over and over and over again in the story of scripture. So what are we going to do today? What happens when darkness fights back? See, when darkness fights back, what your foundation is on will be exposed. And your family will be revealed. Because what we're going to see in the story today is that the enemy's plan, he kind of like shows his hand. You know what his plan is for your life? To distract you from God's word and to isolate you from God's people. That's what the enemy wants to do in your life. And we're going to see in this first interaction of Paul and Barnabas as they go out to spread the name of Jesus, you're going to see those two things come to life. So if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up in this room. Come on. We're going to read a story about a sorcerer named Elimus. So here's my question for you. If you were not allowed to watch or read Harry Potter, yes, leave your Bible up in the air. If you're not allowed to, I'm trying to find all my 90s Christian kids. Who watched Veggie Tales? Amen. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Man, people get fired up about Jesus and Harry Potter. So we're going to focus on Jesus today in church as we read about this sorcerer. Okay, Acts chapter 13. We're really going to start the verse beforehand. It's the end of Acts chapter 12. And it's Acts chapter 12, verse 25. When you're there, say, I'm there. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. 
the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that was scary. Sorry for that. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you not stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Okay, look up for air. These are some of the most powerful, explosive moments in the history of the church. That as the gospel is going out, pay attention to all the beauty of what just happened in this story. You got this church that is on fire in Antioch, made up of all kinds of ethnic distinctions and socioeconomic classes, and they get together and they worship and they pray and they fast. And in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So they did. And it says they sent them off. Did you know the Greek language for sent them off? That word means to throw them out. That's what they use for throwing out trash. It's like the Holy Spirit said, these leaders who are leading the entire church, get rid of them, throw them out. They got to go with this message. And so then they take John Mark, their cousin, because Barnabas and John Mark are from Cyprus. And they take them and he goes down and he sails to this island. And while they're preaching to all these synagogues, the governor, the proconsul of the entire island, Sergius Paulus, hears about it and is like, I want to hear the word of God. So then Paul and Barnabas are brought into this moment where they're looking at this man who wants to hear the word of God and Elimus, the sorcerer who's with them, looks at him and says, no. And he tries to stop them and tries to turn the guy away from listening to their message. And it's almost like, you're no Bar Jesus. Bar Jesus, by the way, means son of Jesus. It's like Paul looks at him and says, you're no son of Jesus. You are a son of the devil. Rebukes him, blinds him, and now he's groping about. And the guy, Sergius Paulus, is probably like, I just wanted to hear the word of God. And now I'm witnessing the, re the reality of God on full display. And I'm watching something I've never seen before. And he believes their teaching. Whoa, what a story. And so before we go any further where this applies to your life, I just got to say from the very beginning that if you're in this room right now, this is the story about whether or not you were called to be a missionary. This is the story. If you're feeling like God is bursting in your heart right now to maybe go overseas, to go to an unreached people group, this is the story that you got to come to and say, I'm going to fast, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask God. Because the reality is, is that once you send a missionary, notice what happens. They're not trying to go win converts. Essentially, they're trying to plant churches. So you have to be sent by a church. There's no such thing as rogue missionaries. So if you're wondering in this room, what is ACC doing to send people to the ends of the earth? I'll tell you. So the last few years, no one knows about this really, we started these things called global groups. And the whole effort was that they're going to teach this group of people, these 10-week groups, train them and equip them to be able to go out and evangelize, share their faith in Auburn, Alabama. A lot of the times it's with international students. And so while they're equipping these people, they realize that you're not going to go to the world until you learn how to share your faith at home. 
So you equip them here, and that way, after those training, those 10-week groups, some of them are being like, whoa, I think I'm supposed to go, I'm called to do this with my life. And so then they go into this nine-month training where they're discipled and equipped to go overseas to an unreached people group area. And I'm happy today to tell you that in Auburn Community Church, right now, there are about a dozen people who are praying through, who are fasting, who are trying to figure out if they are supposed to go overseas as missionaries, as we speak, from Auburn Community Church. And you probably didn't even know about it. It's amazing that God is doing this. He uses the local church to send. But here's the point of what I'm trying to make. In just a week from tomorrow, we're doing a class called the Mission of God class. I'm gonna put a screen up on the screen right now. So that's starting next Monday. Right now, we have over 80 people already signed up to show up and hear about God's heart for the nations and where all of you can participate in the kingdom of God. And here's what I just hate about what, everything that I just said is that so many of you just wrote off everything that I'm saying and, and this story will be stuck in the pages of this scripture because you know you're not gonna be a missionary. But here's the reality that we see in the kingdom of God. Just because you're not called to be a missionary does not mean you're not required to live missionally. Just because you're not the one going doesn't mean that that should change your mindset of what you do here. Because before the gospel goes to the world, it has to hit home with you. Maybe it's coming home. And so there, the power of what I want to do in the next few minutes is really look back at this scripture and ask the question, how do we do that? So go look at verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, obviously, there's so many backgrounds. I don't have time to go into every one of these characters in the story, but I do want to hit on one of them because it's really important, I think, for somebody specific, and it's Manan. Manan, it says he's the brother he brought up. He was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. You know what that means? His brother is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. His brother is the one who murdered prophets. His brother is the one who sent Jesus to the cross. And here, Manan is as one of the early founders of Antioch Church. And I'm saying that because the sins of your family do not disqualify God using you. The sins of your family don't disqualify you. You got one brother over here and you got one brother over here. And the character is so powerful because you realize really quickly with this group of people, Jesus is for the world. Jesus is for the world. And so this week, I was preparing for the sermon, and I was kind of, sometimes I watch other sermons just to get me fired up. If you can't tell, I'm a pretty excitable person. And I was watching the sermon of Billy Graham. And he was, he was quoting, and there's this powerful moment where he's preaching at the peak of the tension of the civil rights movement. And he's standing on stage, and he's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about the cross of Christ, and he's like, don't y'all forget that a black man helped Jesus carry his cross. And he keeps going, and he's like, don't you know that Jesus was not a white man like me? Don't you know that Jesus is probably not as dark as some of you? We don't know the exact color of his skin, but don't you ever say that Jesus is a white man's religion or a black man's religion. Jesus is a world religion because Jesus belongs to the world. And I was watching that. I was getting so fired up because that's what the story is essentially saying. And at the same time, I, it was kind of a convicting message for me because to be honest, I think I like Jesus belonging to my world more than the whole world. I think I like protecting my little circle, protecting my name, rather than proclaiming his name. And I've noticed in my own life, there's this posture that has started to develop where I, I can't live missionally to the world because I'm living in this defensive posture against the world. And I'm trying to see my faith as this truth I'm supposed to just protect instead of this gift I'm supposed to give. Jesus belongs to the whole world. 
And that's where the church started, with the whole world being there, in the room praying. So verse two, continuing on. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Did you notice the context of the discernment of God's voice? The way you discern the voice of God and the will of God for your life is worship, fasting, and prayer. Meaning, God, I want only you. I'm worshiping only you. I want to only desire you. That's what fasting does. It's praying with your body. And I want to relinquish control. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what's interesting? What if in your life, the next time that you had a major life decision, you didn't sit there and mull over all the options and you make a pros and cons list for how selfish you can turn out to be on the end. What if, instead of that, you invited all the people who know Jesus in your life. You said, hey, can you fast for me? And then maybe next week, I'm gonna invite you over to our house, we'll have a meal and I'll throw some worship music on and maybe we just pray and we ask God to show up. If you create the space and the expectancy for God to show up, I think you'll be surprised how clearly the Holy Spirit speaks. And even more than that, how much he speaks to someone else. Not even you. You're looking for an answer. You're looking for something. Here's the beauty of the church. Is you don't have to seek for answers alone. So what if the will of God is so much more than just you trying to figure it out and accidentally stumble upon it? Because the power of this verse, I want you to put it back up there. The power of this verse, it says, while they were worshiping and fasting, while after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them. In my life, let me just give you this one for free. In my life, I've noticed among all my friends and a lot of people I know in the 30s and 40s, I have noticed that the moment that people started walking into sin or they started walking away from God was when they started to drift away from community. I've noticed that a lot of people think that they can have this private, isolated faith. No, faith was meant to be lived in community. And so I'm just telling you right now that maybe the answers that you're seeking are on the other side of you being real with some people. That there is communal wisdom and also corporate commissioning by the local church. That's all we say, go and be the church every single week. So put, a, put the map on the screen of where we go in just a second. This is where we're going to go. He went from Antioch down to Seleucia, which is a port city about 16 miles away. And then he went to Salamis, which is a major commercial city, and he was preaching there. And then they went to Paphos. And Paphos is really important to understand because Paphos is actually the capital city and the political center. And the goddess that they worship there is Aphrodite and Venus. So you can just imagine how pagan this city would have been. This is the place where I would say all the parties are happening. They have this festival called Aphrodisia. That's where we get a word that you know of. Aphrodisia, that's the spot. This is a horrible pagan city, yet he's called to go there. So why? Well, number one, I think it's because the Holy Spirit sent them off. Remember that? It says, set apart them to go. But number two, this was Barnabas's hometown. This is where, this is where he's from. This is Cyprus. And I told you earlier, the message of Jesus has to hit home with you first before you go to the world. And maybe your calling is not to go overseas to some unreached people group. Maybe your calling is to go back home to where you're from. Maybe for, for you in this, in this room, it makes sense because God has wired this thing in us where we like love our hometown. Like even if for whatever reason, you have these memories, you have this nostalgia, you have these relationships connected to your hometown. And being in the South, if you don't believe me, just go listen to some country music. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I meet these people from the middle of nowhere, Alabama, 
You know what I'm talking about? You meet these people from the middle of nowhere, Alabama, and they're like, man, I could not wait to get out of my hometown. I could not wait to get out of that one stoplight. I could not wait to get to Auburn, Alabama. But then you hear the song, where I come from. And everybody's like, oh, I come from the best town. I love my, to- my small town. And you're like, right, right, obviously. Um, so I just think that there's this thing in all of us that we have this like moment. And also, I just realized I'm never making the worship team after that performance, but I, I thought about this. I'm like, C.S. Lewis says this. He says that that longing in you for your home is actually a longing for heaven. Every time you miss home, it's the reminder that you don't belong here. You belong in heaven. And so let me illustrate this with a point. Here's a story that, that happened to me um, when I went into seminary. I moved to Texas. One of my closest friends I met was a guy named Emmanuel, and he was from Rwanda. We were like roommates, and we spent a lot of time together. And so I, I loved Emmanuel for a lot of different reasons. He had a whole different background than I did, and uh, he loved my 2000 Dodge Stratus. He thought it was like a Tesla. He told me this is the coolest car ever. He didn't even have AC, and we lived in Texas. And so there's one morning where we are literally sweating on our way to church. We get to church, and we show up. He's so fired up. And there was a sermon that was preached. It was so powerful. We're worshiping together. And then to top it all off, we got some Texas barbecue as we left church. And I remember driving home, back to our dorm. And I'm like smiling. I'm like beaming. Like, man, we're going to be able to do this with our life one day. Isn't this awesome? And I just look at him. I'm like, dude. After seeing and experiencing all that America has to offer, I bet it's going to be really hard for you to go back to Rwanda. Which, by the way, what an arrogant thing to say. And I was like, I bet it's going to be really hard for you to go back to Rwanda. And you know what he said to me? I'll never forget. He, like, chuckled to himself and laughed. And he goes, Gage, with what I've seen back in Rwanda, how could I not go back? What I've seen there. People without food, people without hope, people who need Jesus, and they're my people. How could I not go back? Some of you in this room, it's a geographical space. You know what it's like in the inner city back there. You know what it's like in the small hometown. But some of you, it's very spiritual. The family that frustrates you so much I don't know Jesus. How could you not go back? The patients that you met fighting cancer, how could you not go back? The addiction, the AA meetings, you're now removed from, but you remember the names, how could you not go back? See, when you know God, you know the message of Jesus, the question is, how could you not go back? If faith is only this profession that you made in private, with God, asking him to cover your sin, asking him to forgive you, and it's just this security blanket that you want to cover yourself so you feel good about yourself at funerals. Maybe you are a consumer of Jesus, not a disciple of Jesus. Because everything I read about in this book about being a disciple of Jesus means that when you know the Son of God, when you know the one who paid it all for you, it doesn't make you consume more, it makes you go more. It makes you see the reality. There are people who don't know that there's a God in heaven who understands the intricate details of their story, who's sovereign, who created the universe, who's sustaining the universe, who wants a relationship with you, and I know him. You can know him too. How could you not go back? How could you not? 
I think for so many of us, we get so stuck in not realizing the power and the potential of where we've been. So I gotta finish the story, I'm getting too fired up. Okay, finishing the story, verse six. There they met a man, or a Jewish sorcerer, and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. All right, I just gotta be honest with you. As a church person, and having grown up in the church, and I, I, I don't actually believe this sentence. For most of my life, I've theoretically believed this sentence, but I haven't practically believed this sentence. What do I mean? I mean that most of us in this room don't actually believe that intelligent people want to hear the word of God. We don't believe it. So for a lot of us who have been in church for a long time, it meant that we tried to save the gospel by changing the gospel. It meant that we tried to say, hey, there's this good God who loves you and it's okay, you can keep living in your sin, you can keep doing whatever you want. When I read in the pages of scripture, when Jesus showed up, he died for you. And then he said, come and die with me. And so I think a lot of us got stuck in churches where Jesus in the Bible, the Bible was either this like help to a supplement to like this Jesus-y TED talk, or it was something that beat you over the head as something that hurt you. And when I look in the pages of scripture, I quickly see it's because we don't believe that intelligent people simply want to hear the word of God. What if the reformation that God is doing in our day is because people are returning here? Why do you think we want you to hold up your Bible every single week? It's not to get a date because you're single. It's because we want you to see this is where life is found. This is where I can know God. And so I just want us to believe this. But check how Paul responds because I think that he is so indicative to what the enemy wants to do and when darkness fights. Verse 8, but Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, once again, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul, which is the governor, from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed about the teaching of the Lord. So two questions I want to ask directly out of this passage to kind of close our time together. Number one is this, what is distracting you from God's word? What is distracting you from God's word? What about your daily rhythms? What about your time? What about your schedule? Is completely distracting you away from the Lord. And the easiest question that I always ask as a pastor that really throws people off and I feel bad after I ask it, but kind of not, is, hey, what did you read yesterday? And typically, I get a, an excuse or a response that's like, either yes, I did, and here's what it is, or B, it's like, oh, well, I had a test, and oh, well, I, you know, we're out of town, and oh, well, I, whatever your excuse is, is probably your distraction. What is distracting you from God's word? Because there's an invitation that's better. So what I want to do is I want to show you, did you notice when you were reading this story that it's actually a complete retelling of the Apostle Paul's conversion? So think about this. The first ever conversion story that happens through Apostle Paul being sent out as a missionary is actually just a retelling of his conversion story. Because what happened in this story? Remember, he's groping about and Elimus, he blinds him, all those things, he rebukes him. He tells him to stop making crooked the straight paths. He does all that. Guess what happened with Paul? If you look back at Acts chapter 9, it's scary how quickly everything looks almost completely parallel. 
You remember the Apostle Paul, what's happening? He's on his road to Damascus to what? To stand in the way of Christians. And on the way, Jesus meets him and he blinds him. It says that he was blinded and he was groping about in the darkness and someone grabbed his hand. And it says, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. So then he goes to the house of Judas on Straight Street and then Ananias shows up and says, here's a word from the Lord. Puts his hand on him and says, you are going to be my chosen instrument to the Gentiles and the Gentile rulers. Guess who the first person is being saved right here? This Gentile ruler, Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus. Here he is. And Paul is living out the very calling that God gave him through his word. And you and I have the same invitation every time we open these pages. But there's some details of that story that I think are too fun to, to pass up. Because I think, honestly, I love Paul. Anybody love how mad Paul gets? It's like, you son of the devil. Like, I kind of love that, just reading the scriptures. And I'm like, why is he so mad? That's just a question I ask myself. Number one, I think it's because he saw himself. He's like, I, I was an Elimus. I stood in the way of others. But number two, I think it's because he saw the enemy's plan for all of us. And it's this word, distraction. Verse eight, but Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So that word is really like tried to get the attention in the opposite direction. It's the opposite of repentance. I'm trying to get him to not pay attention to the message that you are giving right now. So when that is happening, the enemy is trying to distract him away from the message of Jesus. And you would say right now, I think all of us in this room would say, I would know if there was a sorcerer walking around with me, making sure that I don't believe or distract me or whatever. But here's the funny thing. What do you think that voice in the back of your mind is? that tells you that all of this isn't that real? What do you think the lie behind in the back of your mind when you think about whether or not you're good enough to be good enough for God? We all have alimuses in our life, meaning we all have obstacles that are standing in the way for us truly experiencing who God is. What are they? I don't know, maybe your phone distracting you from ever thinking for two seconds about God's word. I don't know, maybe your schedule is continually reminding you of all the other things you need to do besides spend time with God or show up to church. What about all the other things in your life, the friends that keep pulling you away in different directions from being here with God's people, your community group or whatever. There's so many things in our life we don't realize are alimuses. And the last thing I'll say about it is this. I think it's very interesting that the place where, God, where Paul went to hear the word of God is the exact rebuke that Paul uses for distracting from the word of God. What I mean is, when Paul goes to uh, Judas's house, it says, Judas's house on Straight Street. And then, in this rebuke, he looks straight at Elimus and then uses the exact same Greek word and says, why are you making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I think it's fascinating that the conversion story of Paul is how he's retelling it. It's like a testimony he's revealing to Sergius Paulus. It's a retelling of his story in the opposite way. What is distracting you from God's word? And number two is this. What is isolating you from God's people? What is isolating you from God's people? Now, I said it earlier, but people who walk away from Jesus or walk into sin typically started with a drift from community. They started without realizing it that, oh, this gathering isn't that important. 
They started thinking that listening to a sermon on a podcast on a run is just as powerful as listening to it in the room, which I think all of you in this room would know that is not true. There is something about the collective gathering of the saints together under the word of God, the Holy Spirit uniting us all together as believers. There's something powerful about the gathering of the saints. And so what is isolating you from God's people? What is keeping you from experiencing everything that God has for you? Because not only did we as the church stop believing that intelligent people want to hear the word of God, we in the church started believing that God's presence is only available everywhere outside of the church. So think about it. Growing up in a youth group, what was taught to me was, hey, come to camp. God's presence is at the camp or at the retreat or at behind the brand of the speaker or a band or a model of church. God's presence is over there. And then we wonder why thousands of young people are leaving the church. Well, we move God's presence out of the church, and then we're surprised when they left? See, God's people, this is what's so fascinating. There is a reformation, like I said, happening in our midst, and it's not just this church. There's so many churches like this that they believe that intelligent people want to hear from this book, and they believe that what's happening here is a kingdom reality where we are going to war. We are here to advance God's kingdom, not here to enhance our comfort. I don't care if you like this place. I don't care if the music's awesome. We are here because this is a battle station. We are sent out. So let's go and be the church. Every single week, what is isolating you from God's people or keeping you from showing up here? And the last thing I'll say is, I don't want you to think about like the negative church experience you had, but I do need to say this. I've sat through some horrible sermons. You have too, maybe this one, but I've sat through some horrible sermons. I've had some um, horrible cringeworthy notes in a worship song. I've had some terrible trans transitions in between stuff. And here's what's interesting to me. I'm standing here today in front of you because the, of the role that the local church served in my life. What I mean is, maybe what's more powerful than the perfect sermon or the emotional moment of worship or just the perfect word over in a corner the most powerful thing about what is happening in this room right now is that we will be here next week too. So when I look at my life and I think about all this happened, one of the most powerful things is that the local church was always there. And so what is keeping you, from keeping you isolated? So let me just finish with this point. Acts chapter four says this. This is why it matters. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This verse is probably the most important verse, in my opinion, as to why Acts 13 has to happen. But it's also interestingly similar to Acts chapter 4 as Acts chapter 13. Because if you notice, and you go back and look at the story, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit speaking to the Sanhedrin. Paul is filled with the Spirit speaking to Elimus. Peter heals this man. Paul uses the power of God. His hand is on him, and he blinds a man. Like, there's this overlapping nature between the two stories. And this week, I was listening to a sermon by a pastor that I love and I trust, and he titled his sermon, No Other Name. And his whole point of the sermon was that Acts chapter 13 happens because of Acts chapter 4. That what happens in Acts chapter 13 and everybody being spread out and sent out to the world is because there is only one name. There is no other name under heaven in mankind by which people may be saved. There is no other name but Jesus. It's why we have Jesus wins on the wall in the back. Jesus is the only name worthy of praise because he's the only name you can be saved under. And that's the power of why they had to go, right? Well, what's interesting is we love Acts chapter 4, verse 12, but we always forget to read the next verse. Check out the next verse. 
When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So think about this. These intelligent men of the Sanhedrin are like speaking to this unschooled, ordinary group of guys who had just been with Jesus, and they're amazed at what they are saying. And then here you have this story in Acts chapter 13 where there's this intelligent man, Sergius Paulus, who's speaking with Paul. And he's amazed at the teaching that's coming from his lips. And he's watching the power of God on display. And I looked at it, I was like, what do these two stories have in common? These two stories have in common one thing. One thing. They had both been with Jesus. See, Peter was a disciple, had been with Jesus. But Paul, he'd been with God's people. Check out verse 3 again. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Paul had been with Jesus because he had been with God's people. It explains why. One of Paul's greatest teaching to the church in Corinth, what does he say? He says, don't you know that y'all are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in y'all? Meaning, this is an opportunity for us every single week to meet with Jesus. We come here to meet with Jesus, to lift high his name and meet the living God. And that's what is common in both these stories. So I just got to ask you again, what is distracting you from God's word and what is isolating you from God's people? Because I would argue that the fight for your family and your faith is won and lost on your focus in the scriptures and your commitment to the church. You are called to live missionally. You're not called to live in isolation. You're not called to live distracted. The enemy is loves some cultural Christianity, but I think he loves distracted Christianity just as much. And so I want to finish and kind of bring it full circle with a moment that was powerful of worship. And this is one of my favorite moments and favorite pictures. I have it on my desk, so I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is Billy Graham. He is preaching. I talked about him earlier. He is preaching at Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, on a cold, rainy night. And there's this moment where, uh, and this, this is the reason why it's one of my favorite stories, is because there was this neighbor who saw that a young family had moved in next door, and then he invites the young family to church. They don't want to come, but he ends up bringing the, the father and the son of the family to this gathering in Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And as he's preaching and as the moment crescendos and as he's talking about Jesus and the moment that everybody wants to, to know about is whether or not he's going to give his life to Jesus or not. And as he's doing that, the young man is starting to feel in his heart that something's bursting forth, that he is going to give his life to Jesus in that moment and surrender it all. But before he could do that, his son was already five rows down the aisle. So he chased his son down to the altar and both of them gave their life to Jesus because of the neighbor's faithfulness. And the reason why that story matters so much to me is because that man was my grandfather and that boy was my father. So I look at that picture and I think about the power of whatever was being preached. I think about that as the moment where my faith started. And this week, as I was preparing for the sermon, maybe it was the Billy Graham viral thing that I saw or what, but I was like, you know what? I've told that story before and I tell that story to a lot of people, but you know, it was a pretty public ministry. I wonder if I could find the sermon that my grandfather and my father gave their life to Jesus in. I wonder if I could find it. So I started scouring the internet. I had to go to a bunch of different places. And, I, and guess what? Spoiler alert, I found it. I found the sermon that was being preached that stirred my grandfather's heart and my dad's heart. And I was, start, I, I was freaking out. 
So I go and grab, I have to sit it down. I have this whole moment because I'm like, I got to read this with fresh eyes. And so I grab it and I'm looking at it and tears are starting to well up in my eyes. And I begin to read what Billy was preaching that night. And I get to this part in the story and it says that Billy was preaching, for there is no other name under which we must be saved. And I'm reading this transcript and my eyes are just filled with tears. I'm thinking about preaching to you guys about how Acts 13 is actually about the Acts chapter four where there is no other name, so we have to go. And I began thinking about 50 years ago, 50 years ago, there was a man preaching the exact same thing that I'm standing up here preaching right now. And that's where my spiritual family started. That's where the lineage of spirituality started in my life. And I look at that and I think, you know what? God has not changed. The message of Jesus has not changed. For there is no other name under which, under heaven, by which we must be saved as mankind. And the message has not changed. And here's what I love about the story we just read. Here's what I love about Paul. is Paul looked at Sergius Paulus and said to himself, your soul is worth fighting for. He looked at him and he said, no, you won't be in the way. Elimus, get out of here. You son of the devil, get out of here. And here's the reality for some of you today is you don't believe that your soul is worth fighting for. You've, you've already convinced yourself that nobody is really fighting for me. But here's what I'm here today to tell you. Why else did your friend bring you here? Why else has your family been sending you sermons? Why else are you sitting here? It's because they know that the power of God is on display among his people, that his Holy Spirit can transform your entire life, that meeting with the living God changes everything about who you are because there is no other name. There is no other name under which we must be saved. And so if you're wondering, you're like, no one's going to fight for my soul. What do you think I'm doing right now? What do you think I'm doing? I didn't show up here just to read some verses. We all feel good and go home. I came here to encourage you with the news that it's good. And so I'll fight for you right now. Jesus is better than any other option you have for your life. You don't have to stay like a limus in your sin and in darkness and a stumbling block to everyone else in your life, keeping them from Jesus. You can be like Paul and repent and turn and have your hand be led all the way to the cross of Christ who has paid it all for you. Jesus didn't seem to care too much about what people thought when he was bleeding out naked on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. I think he's ready to receive you. And so the same message that I read about 50 years ago on a page this week is so real and relevant. This is all real. I'm not up here just to make noise. But you know what I thought about this week? And I'll, fi I'll finish with this. Sorry, I'm going long. I'll finish with this. I had this thought this week. that Yes, that moment was so powerful. The preaching of the, the word of God that saved my family's life. That's so powerful. But you know what was more powerful than me as I thought about it? If you meet my 85-year-old grandfather, and you spend any time with him, he's going to start talking to you about God's word. So that moment led to something in him that changed. He became obsessed with understanding this word. He became obsessed with knowing God. He even went to seminary right after he became a Christian because he wanted to know more. Then he became a pastor and he's still preaching. Right now, he's probably preaching as I am preaching. 50 years ago, met Jesus. Here I am preaching here. He's preaching there. And the other thing is my dad. My dad met my mom at a church meeting not the Bible drill, but whatever they did back in the Baptist church in the 80s, met my mom there. They got married, and he still serves as a Sunday school teacher in that same church. Over 40 years later, he's been committed to that church over and over and over again through transition, through trial. I think the most important lesson that I learned was, yes, 
There's power in the moments of God's word being rightly preached, but there is something even more powerful of a lifetime of faithfulness and commitment to God's people and God's word. So he wants to isolate you from his word. He wants to distract you from his word. He wants to isolate you from the people around you because that's where he's got you. But Jesus has got you more. His arms are around you. His grace is available. He is open up, just like he hung on that cross, open up, ready to receive you. If your heart is bursting within you, this is a moment where you would give your life to Jesus. So we're gonna take communion as a family. So if you wanna take out your sets, if you don't have a communion set, you can raise your hand right where you're at. Someone on our team will bring one to you. We're gonna enjoy this time. This is a time to delight. This is a time to enjoy the fact that Jesus has paid it all on the cross. Your sins don't have to stay on your conscience. They belong on the cross. And so this is a moment for you to pray if you're a husband over your wife. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this is a moment where you can come to know Jesus. But this is also a moment just for the family of God. If you just want to sit that out, no pressure, you can sit it out. But let's enjoy the fact that Jesus paid a way for us. And the last thing for believers, I would just challenge you in this time as you're thinking about Jesus. If you're a believer in this room, what soul is worth fighting for in your life? Who in your life is worth fighting for? Maybe you just pray right now for the radical conversion of them meeting Jesus. So let's take some time with God and then we'll worship in just a moment.